Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations with Kaylee. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent the last decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my book knowledge and combining it with real life experiences to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations that always include practical tips so you can walk away feeling inspired and empowered to make simple yet impactful changes in your family's life. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another Core Conversation with Kaylee. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Pranu and she is a local legend around here where I'm from because (laughs) of her small bookstore with big personality called Rohi's Readery. And I don't even want to spoil the surprise. I went to let her talk and explain about her readery, what the mission is. And we are going to use it to talk about raising inclusive, kind, compassionate kiddos as we go into this next school year. Without further ado, Pranu, please introduce yourself. Please tell us your story and about your little piece of paradise in the readery. Oh my gosh. Well, first off, thank you so much, Kaylee, for those kind words and loving support from the very beginning of of having the readery that's now been open for a little over a year. I cannot believe it, but I'm just so grateful, one, to have this space. I really think about my story and how it connects to the readery and how the opening of the readery has been sort of manifesting itself in a way. So it really all just sort of begins with my childhood experiences. So I was born in India. My father came to the U.S. a little bit before, and my mom and I were living in India. And we moved to the U.S. We moved to the Deep South when I was about two, and Texas to be exact. And it was really there that I experienced, and my family and I both experienced, you know, a tremendous amount of racism and oppression in not only the school spaces, not only the professional spaces, but the personal sort of everyday spaces as well. And so as I got older, you know, it was a a matter for my family of saying, keep your head down, do what you need to do and find your ways to assimilate. And that was really sort of ingrained in me. So I didn't know anything different, but as you get older, you start to sort of see and reflect on the experiences of growing up and start to, for me personally, it was, oh, I am not seeing myself in spaces, whether it's literature, whether it's curriculum, whether it's just the advertisements in the department stores, whether it is the commercials, the shows, any type of media. And as I got older, realized that my lack thereof finding my identity contributed an incredible amount to my mental health challenges and experiences. So as I got older was instead of trying to become my most authentic self was finding myself erasing more and more of who I was and in sort of my roots and my culture and my ancestry. And so when I was 23, 
I had my first sort of attempt at suicide. And it was during that time where I did not realize it at the time. But when I reflect on it now, I think we're always reflecting on our experiences and then we find those aha moments and it's like, oh, that was triggering. Oh, that was why I felt that way. Yes. <laughs> I think about it now and I know it is because I did not feel seen. I did not feel valued. And yes, I did for my parents and my immediate family, but in the world around us and the world in which you spend the majority of your time in. And so, I always say that teaching saved my life because it was in my mid-20s. I was a career changer, moved to New York, working four part-time jobs, applied to over 250 positions and found that that one glimmer of hope. And it was a career-changing fellowship for teachers. And that's where I started teaching. And being in New York, in the South Bronx and in Harlem, I was constantly surrounded by children and families and community who are proud of their identity wow. and proud of their culture. And it was during that time where I started to feel proud of who I was and my ancestry and my background. And so it's so interesting how kids can always teach you. They're really the ones that are mentoring us, not the other way. A hundred percent. I right, say that right? on a daily basis. Yes. Yeah. It's like always the feeling of, oh my gosh, you just taught me this and you weren't even trying to do that, you know? Yeah. And so it was through teaching that I started to find myself more and more through the lens of, of my children. So I taught in the South Bronx and in Harlem. I coached teachers, wrote curriculum, and was able to reflect more and more of the wrongs of the past and how to right those wrongs with what I was doing in my life, how to ensure that children did not ever feel like they were not valued in the place that was supposed to make them feel safe. Like they didn't belong. Yeah. That's what keeps coming to my mind as you're talking. We as people have this deep yearning to belong. Oh, yeah. And when you don't belong because you can't see yourself anywhere, that piece of you is ignored, shut down. You have to stuff it somewhere. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And it's so interesting because that theme of belonging, there's this quote that I often and always reflect on and it's by Sean Hardman, Hardnett, I'm sorry. And he founded the Statesman Academy for Boys in DC. And he says that being seen and valued is so close to being loved that the two are almost indistinguishable. So you can tell me you love me. You can use those words and say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I care for you. But if you're not creating those opportunities to show that without using those words, kids pick up on that. And especially in the classroom setting, that's for sure. But even, you know, I can tell my baby girls, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if I'm on the computer doing work while I'm saying that, that's not a connection right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I constantly am thinking about and that. Adults, like I think about this all the time. Adults, like think of how it is with your partner. If you're trying to have this like deep conversation and they're texting, like they're on their phone type, you're like, hello. But how often as parents do we do that? 
Like oh, yeah. I, I try, I've gotten in the habit now, and this is not the point of this podcast, but I've gotten in the habit now of saying like, if I'm in the middle of a thought, because think of all the things we do on our phones. Like I work primarily from my phone, then banking, paying bills, like all this stuff on my phone. So I'll say, hey, I'm going to finish this thought or I'm about to send this email and then I'm putting my phone down and I would love to hear what you have to say. Yes. Yes. Prefacing. Yes. Instead of just fake paying attention because kids are like, "Uh -uh, uh uh-uh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And to that point, that's literally what I was trying to think about within teaching within the classroom was how do I always make sure, and through the social emotional learning curriculum, all of it was how are we making our babies feel seen, feel valued, feel a sense of belonging. You literally put a book up that a child resonates with and they see themselves. All of a sudden they connect you with that moment to that experience and they feel I belong. This is my place. I feel, and I know this word is sort of like hard, especially right now, but the sense of safety, however you define it, you're creating a sense of safety for that child. And so when I moved from New York to Seattle, I was able to co-found the first elementary charter in the state of Washington that was really committed to identity-driven learning community-based learning, and we did uh, project-based learning. And what was great about, I know it was great. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> learning was just, it's such joy. And what I loved about that opportunity was that I got to work with families and we worked together to create the curriculum. So if it was learning about poets of color, we were making sure that the poets of color were reflective of the communities that we were working with. So it was a primarily Ethiopian, Eritrean, Somalian, Burmese, Mexican population. I want to make sure that our babies and our community is the voice of the curriculum because that's another thing. Thinking about schools, schools were not created for people of color. And so it's so important that we are now trying to dismantle a lot of those systems that were intentionally created to make sure that our children, and I extend that to marginalized communities in general, to say that what are we going to do to make sure that from our families that have experienced trauma, the kids that are entering through the doors now all feel a sense of collective safety. But then I moved to Florida kind of all over the place Well, I just like shout out to Seattle because I just was in Seattle and walking around Seattle. I was like, this is my place. Like this is my place. It was such an incredible. We were at this big playground that you probably know. It's right behind the Children's Museum there. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And while we were waiting our turn to go up this like epic rope ladder, okay, (laughs) I counted six languages being spoken six. And I was standing there looking at my husband. I'm like, I keep counting languages. This is amazing. You know, yes. like, like our kids are getting more culture here than they do like in the past month. You know, it was amazing. But they have like, I have, I'm Florida girl, like the sunshine. If not, I'd probably yes. pick up and move there. Oh my gosh. Seattle's got a little bit of overcast. <laughs> anyway, you move from Seattle to Florida. It's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. No. And to your point though, 
Seattle, that was being in that school, over 95% of our kids spoke multiple languages. So even that's that's another, oh yeah. And that also is another piece, right? That sense of what language are we using to make sure it's always asset, like an asset approach versus deficit. When I think about those babies, I started thinking more about, okay, inclusive language. We're going to say multilingual learners versus English language learners, because I want to make sure that we are creating opportunities for our kids to know your language is just as valuable and, and important and that is a part of who you are, right? It belongs. It belongs, exactly. It matters, it's important. Exactly. But I will say when I was in Seattle, I as an adult experienced some hardships within the school spaces around my own sense of feeling seen, value, belong as an educator of color. And so it was when I moved to Florida that I had founded this education consulting company called Divers with an H-E-R for her. And it was, yeah, just a little tidbit that um, was focused around representation and retention of educators, uh, of female educators of color. And during this time, it was then the pandemic, one of multiple pandemics, COVID. And also at this point was the passing of George Floyd. And a lot of what we've been talking about in schools and educational spaces, we've been talking about a lot of these experiences that people of marginalized communities have been experiencing for a while. I just want to point out, you know, I wrote about this in 2020 that I, as a student, a teacher, so when I was in school, I was in getting my degree from 2006 to 2011, and we learned in our classes about the disparities stratified by race. And so this dialogue that's become super politicized, super divisive now, it was non-existent back then because it was just, we were just reading research. We were just reading research. And so we were taught the aware little things like black boys are more likely to have behavioral problems, whereas or be punished, right, rather than their white counterparts. So us as educators were trained, be aware of that when you're approaching a child is this, I mean, we were taught that and this was back in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So what you're speaking to this issue has been very much talked about in the educational world for decades prior to this big racial reckoning we had in in 2020. Absolutely. And that was really hard for me too, because it was a matter of me consistently asking, where were you? Where were you 10 years ago? Where were you when my babies were being coming to my room because you didn't want to deal with them? Deal quote unquote, where were you when we had been talking about the disparity and even pay? Where were you when we were trying to advocate for our communities? And during that time, I started getting more and more DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting opportunities through diverse. And my biggest thing though, was, was that people were making statements, but either there was no action behind it or 
They were picking and choosing what they wanted to use of my content. And so are you really committed to the work if you are picking and choosing then what you want to use? And that's really where, and I know I say this whole story, but this is where Rowie's Readery came to place because it was a matter of, if I can't fix the system now, how can I work around the system to make sure? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Like, okay, we got to get creative. Yes. We got to figure out a way. We got to go outside the box because the system is the box and it's not serving us. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And how do we make sure that what we want to happen will happen? You know, and that was really where Rowie's Readery came because it was thinking about my, at that time, my one child, um, now, now two little ones, thinking about how to make sure that Rohini never experiences or feels how I did growing up in school spaces. So how am I going to make sure that we are creating maybe one place, one more place for her to feel seen in a way? And this is the other thing too, when I think about all children, right? When we're talking about behavior and how they're seen in general by adults is when they are mistreated because it's going to happen. They start questioning that person rather than questioning themselves because they have such a strong sense of self and they know their self-worth. They know how they deserve to be treated and they know how other people deserve to be treated. And this it's never too young. You know, my I have a 4, so my kiddos are a little bit older than than yours, but not much. I have a 4 and a 7-year-old and their awareness of injustice in the world of when they witness unkindness or when they witness a child having a hard time, that's what they tell me. Oh, mommy, I remember him. He was having a really hard time instead of he was a bad boy. He wasn't listening. When we normalize certain behaviors, we normalize their treatments. They're going to go out in the world and they're going to see what the world has to offer. And they're going to be able to choose, okay, this is the place where I'm welcomed and where I can be my most authentic self and where I'm treated the way I deserve to be treated. And they can put up boundaries, like space between them and places where it's just like, "Mm -mm, no, no, thank you. (laughs) It's so agree completely with all of what you're saying. And I think to your point, that's really why Rohi's Readery is here. So Rohi's Readery is a social justice-driven children's bookstore and learning center that's committed to critical literacy that promotes inclusivity and diversity. And so every single book in the Readery is reflective of historically marginalized communities. So whether it is Black, Indigenous, Arab, Latina, Pacific Islander, Asian, LGBTQIA plus community, the neurodiverse community, the disability community, we are ensuring that we are creating opportunities for children to be exposed to windows and mirrors of learning. I know you know that. Yeah, windows and mirrors, right? Exactly. Like, to be able to see yourself, right? And then, but also to learn the stories of another, because to your point from the very beginning, how can we build conscious citizens of us all if we are not exposing our children 
to a variety of what our community does look like. And so, you know, the books are reflective of joyful, everyday stories and also historic truths so that children know that there is also all different types of family units. There are all different types of humans experiencing different emotions and how to honor that, celebrate that, and also attune to that when you see it in loving ways. And then we do free educational programming. So we do about 15 to 20 free classes a month that tie to the beautiful literature. So children are understanding how to connect what they see and read to the world. So we call it revolutionary readers because you read something, you learn something, you share it with the world. And so that's really the hope. Yeah. So that goes along with my mission of be the change you wish to see in the world of the Gandhi quote, because that really is what it is. This core parenting conversation is brought to you by Kaylee's core membership. If you've tried the Instagram parenting tips and tricks to gain connection and cooperation with your child and it's still not working, (laughs) if you feel confused about how to respond to some of your child's bigger behavior, or maybe you need the encouragement and accountability to make the changes you know you and your family need, CORE offers the weekly support and tools to make these powerful shifts within a supportive, uplifting community. We talk about real-life parenting, not the neat and clean two-dimensional examples often given on social media. You can learn more about this program by heading to my website, www.kayleekukla.com backslash core, C-O-R, for Centered on Relationships. The link is in the show notes. Now back to this core parenting conversation. So I get asked a lot because I work a lot with the neurodivergent population, and there are typically some behaviors that go along with certain neurodivergence. So, you know, not speaking, communicating in different ways, different sensory needs, maybe more like different ways of expressing emotions. And so I get asked a lot at parents of how do we have these conversations or what do I say when my child is like staring and mommy, why is he doing that? Why can't she talk? And I think something that you and I, one of the reasons why I reached out to you, especially at the beginning of the school year, is our children are going to go out in the world and they're going to meet all different types of people. But here's the thing about differences. If they're so different, if they're so far outside of what you're used to, they don't feel safe. So there's a little bit of defensiveness that comes up like, whoa, why? Like the first time my two-year-old saw a wheelchair like in person, he was a little scared of it. He didn't understand it. And so we had this whole explanation of, you know, this is what they use to get around and this helps them move and look, the wheels spin. This is how it works. So books are such a gentle, easy, digestible, approachable, strong connecting activity we can do with our children to build that foundation for them. So when they go out in the world, they're open to these new experiences and these new people. Oh, absolutely. I think so much, even as adults, how I am constantly unlearning all of my 
the things that I learned when I was younger that I thought when I was even, you know, even like yesterday, <laughs> and literally every day, I feel like I'm unlearning even around my ableism and also just how I perceive the world around me. I have had to, and I, and just looking at books and reading the children's books that are in the readery, I've opened my eyes every single day to understanding more and more how I hope our children will be because there are so many beautiful books that help us understand how different we are, but also help us embrace that. So, you know, there's a book called Don't Hug Doug. He doesn't like it. And I was conditioned as a child, oh, if someone doesn't want to hug you, what does that mean? Or if someone doesn't want to smile, what does that, you know, and all of these preconceived ideas of how we should be, quote unquote, versus really embracing everyone for who they are in wholeness. I have loved also watching families come into the readery and adults even who are saying, I'm not sure how to go about this topic. I'm also not sure if this topic is going to be teached in our schools because books are being banned. So what can I do? I'm going to pull this book and say, I don't know. And I want to learn together. I think there's something very empowering, and you and I have talked about this. There's something very empowering about a child being able to see you as an adult saying, I don't know, but mm. let's learn together. Let's find together. Yeah. Let's that's find out together. And so I think of even with the LGBTQ population and how there's so many conversations being brought up around, we can't talk about gender and identity in schools right now, in certain schools and thinking about, okay, well, what if a family, a child has two moms or two dads, or what if a child is transgender? And, you know, how are we still creating opportunities for our children to understand the world around them and also love who they are? And I think that's through the power of beautiful literature I have a book also, and I think that's one of the other things I love about the books in the readery is that there are books that are just showing everyday joyful experiences without that thing being the thing. So, so yeah. hold on, because this is really, really super important to me. And I think that this is really misconstrued because, again, this conversation gets politicized when it's not. So my children, so we have two moms, like lesbian cousins, and they have a child and my kids love that cousin. And so that's a very part of their world. But now they're in school where there's all different families. There's two mom families, there's two dad families, there's single moms, there's single dad families, there's just all different kinds of families where my children attend school. And this conversation comes up. So we went to your readery. And what's the name of the Penguin book? Oh my gosh, Tango Makes Three. Tango Makes Three. Okay, my son picked it out because he loves penguins. Yeah. Loves penguins. And it's a true story. P.S. I learned it's a true story about two male penguins that adopted an abandoned egg in New York in Central Park. 
And so my kids are enthralled with this book about penguins hatching a chick. And it created more of a discussion of, oh, that's just like so-and-so's family. She has two daddies. Oh, You know, and that's a classmate. And I would never want... So getting to the point of our children going into school and how do we raise kind, compassionate, inclusive children? I would never want my child going up and saying, well, why do you have two daddies? You should know you have a daddy and a mommy. Where's your mommy? Because, whoa, you want to talk about hard conversations in the classroom. That is a hard conversation to navigate and a scary one for children. So by normalizing this idea of there's two daddies, it's like, oh, there's one of your daddies and there's the other one. Like, okay, move on with life. (laughs) That's the world around us. Side note, Tango Makes Three is one of the most banned book, top 10 banned books in America year after year. So it's like number one. I know it's like in top five every single year. I know it's wild. Yes, it's a true story. I agree. Agreed. I mean, there's this book that I have called Must Have Mom. And I love this book because it addresses so many different pieces. It is a family of color. It is a little boy with a mom who is in a wheelchair. It is different types of family units. It is part of the disability community. And the beautiful thing about this book is that it is just about a little boy and his mom and how his mom must have everything because she loves to create art. And that's the story. It's not even like, this is my mom who is in a wheelchair. It is, this is the story of my mom and I loving to collect things because she's an artist. And I love that. So what that book brings out so beautifully. And it's a thread that you've said a couple times, but I want to pull it out and highlight it for people so they get it, is we're displaying differences through the lens of joy. Yes. And I listened to this other podcast, shout out to First Name Basis. (laughs) If you haven't checked out, she's incredible. Okay. But her podcast name is First Name Basis. And she was talking about one day, it's for adults, it's for parents, she's a was an elementary school teacher to learn how to talk to their kids about hard things around race in a really age appropriate way. And she said, well, most of us learned about the BIPOC community through tragedy, oppression, talking about enslavement and civil rights, talk about the joy, the richness of the culture, the beauty of the culture. And I'm sitting there, I'm driving and I'm raging. Like I had, I was so glad I arrived at my destination. I was raging. I said, oh my gosh, she's right. I was angry. I was like, I, as a child, that's the only way I ever saw these people represented, like that group of people represented. So now that gave me one more thing to be intentional about when I'm choosing books for my children that represent different is we're not, do I have one on Harriet Tubman called Moses? It's beautiful. Yes, because that's history. And I have all other sorts of books with all other sorts of children represented. So that's not the only way my children are learning about BIPOC. And thank you for doing that because that is one of the biggest things that my hope is that children are seeing each other through joy. And then 
in that way, also learning how to advocate for each other because everyone is worthy of joy. Everyone is worthy of that. And, you know, I also think that when we're talking about these experiences and to the opposite effect, you know, when a child does not feel seen, does not feel valued, does not feel belong, there is a microaggression that is made against them in the classroom or whatever, that they are also being given the tools and resources to know I am worthy of joy. I am worthy of being loved in all the ways. And that at the same time that we're providing them with tools through literacy of empowerment, we're also giving children opportunities to advocate for each other. So that's my other thing too, is that literature gives us opportunities to advocate for each other. Because when we know each other, we are more inclined to love on each other, to care for each other. And that's really what the heart of this type of literature is. I think Ibram Kendi recently posted something about this, like, you know, especially for white children to understand, like, you don't have to see yourself as the, the enslaver. You can see yourself as the person at the civil rights marches, walking hand in hand with your black brothers and sisters. You know, so there's a lot of power in that. If you're worried about your kids feeling the shame or whatever, you know, there are some really beautiful stories. And so I want to wrap it up and tell people you and I collaborated last year on a book list that is super inclusive. It took some of my favorite social emotional teaching books and then expanded it with your incredible knowledge. Like you give her a subject and you sent back like 30 books. I was like, whoa, I got to narrow it down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I paired it. I only like cut 10. I don't know. I was, it was really hard to go through and cut any books because I'm a book nerd, just like you. I love them so much. But it's also, so it's this book list that helps children, gives us springboards for talking about separation anxiety, feeling left out, social, you know, common social issues that come up in early childhood. And it's inclusive. So those are the focused lessons of, you know, someone mispronouncing your name, which Kaylee, hello, that happens every time. It's not an ethnic name, but it happened every time. Like every new school year, I was constantly correcting people. And it is. As a child, you're just like, whatever, I'll respond to whatever. Just, you know, don't call me again, please. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but it gives them the scripts and the words and the abilities to be able to process that stuff and get ready. And it's an, a very inclusive book list that just also displays all of these different themes that we talked about today. So that's available for people and it's linked in the show notes if they're interested in that resource. Yeah, that book list, I think, also speaks to the idea of intersectionality, that we are not just one. We are made up of a collective of experiences and identities. And and so allowing children to also understand that they are allowed to be as many things as they want to be, but also they might be advocating for someone in many different ways, too. Oh, I just love it. I cannot... Thank you enough. This is my passion. I would have never labeled it as social justice, but looking back, it's been something that 
you know, I've gravitated towards since a young child. And so to have this platform and have you as a resource in this community is just, it's a dream come true. It really is. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for all you do in our community to advocate and and speak because we are all in this work together, you know, can't do this in silos. So I'm just grateful for the place and space of Rowie's Reary because it really is based around the strength and courage of the ancestors and those who've come before us. And I'm so grateful to have our loving community and the little ones be like our future revolutionaries. So they're so sweet. So if you want to learn more about Rohi's Readery, Pranu's mission, I will link her website in the show notes and you can go on her Instagram. You can find out all about it. It's a great place to buy books. P.S. It's also, there's a 501c3 attached to it, right? Yes. Tell me. So, but people can make donations. Yes. So we are a purpose-driven profit. The money from the donations, all of the tips, donations, we're applying for grants right now. I say we, me, <laughs> right now. So um, <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> can't wait to uh, pay myself one day. But all of the tips, donations, sales of books go back into our free educational programming. So hoping to create that 501c3 for the free programming eventually. But right now, um, we're just making sure that the money is really going back into our community. Same, same. I hear you. I'm like, that's yeah, yeah. on the list. I promise y'all it's on the list one yeah. thing at a time. <laughs> exactly. One checkbox yeah. at a time. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me for this core parenting conversation. Before we go, I want to highlight what Pranu said about books being windows and mirrors. We want to make sure our children can see themselves in places. Those are the mirrors. And make sure they can see others. Those are the windows. When we raise children who know who they are and have a deep sense of belonging, then they can extend that kindness, compassion, and inclusion to others. If you want that book list Pranu and I created together, you can head to the show notes where you'll find it linked. So it's there for you to download. You can also find more about my core parenting membership and Pranu's bookstore, Rohi's Readery, also linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of this movement, believing in the world changer mission. Have a wonderful week and take care y'all.